James Letter, Faith at Works, Bible Study 7, podcast number 7. Um, hello, it's Andrew here. We're just going to read the passage and commend ourselves to the Lord and, and look at what we, we studied in the Bible study, the home Bible study last evening. So I trust it will be a blessing to you. Thank you for tuning in. Chapter 4, verse 1 to 17. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust, and you do not have, you murder. And covet and cannot obtain, you fight in war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures say in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil, one of another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother, he speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge... There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another or your neighbour? Come now, you who say tomorrow, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. You know the Lord blesses his word, shall we pray? Father, as we look into thy holy word again today, we pray that we might be submissive to it we think of the subject of worldliness and so often we can be affected by it we just pray our father that as we look into um, the scriptures of truth that your holy name might be magnified and that each one of us may take a blessing away in the lord's name amen sorry for the background noise today folks i'm doing it a bit later and so you might hear cars and whatever going around in the background my apologies about that um, it's just the time in which i'm doing it uh, on a saturday morning so last evening we looked at um james letter faith at works um chapter four and as we've been saying that really the subject matter was what really is worldliness what is worldliness there's lots of ideas about worldliness in the, in the among christians um and really we've got to ask ourselves what does the bible say now the word itself is 
one of those words that you don't don't find in the Bible. Um, it's just not there. It doesn't mean that the concept is in there. Just like the Trinity, there's clearly the concept of the Trinity, even though the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. The Rapture, there's no English word anyway for Rapture in the Bible. Um, so just because the word worldliness is not in the Bible doesn't mean that there's not such a concept. There clearly is. And it's expressed in different ways in, in different parts of the New Testament. For instance, um, Peter writes in the second letter about escaping the corruption that is in the world through lust. Um, and clearly he's thinking of, as he says in the first letter, about being strangers and pilgrims. He's saying, you know, you're you're to be separate from the characteristics of the world around you. As, and so therefore he is speaking of that in a sense as, you know, coming away from and, and being separate from worldliness. John writes of loving not the world, neither the things that are in the world. He speaks about these lusts and desires again. And he points out that this is a, you know, a desire driven world that we're in. It, it, it functions because of wants and illicit desires and, and all these kinds of things make it tick. And of course, he, he brings out in this gospel, the Lord praying. What was the Lord praying for? That we would not be taken out of the world, but that we might be preserved in the world. And so we are not of the world, our character, but we are in the world, our position, our, our, our physical position. We are in the world, uh, but not of it. Paul writes about being crucified to the world. He writes uh, in Galatians 6 about that. He writes in Romans 12 about don't be conformed to this world. He uses a different word, the word for age. But don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed. So the world has this pressure of, of conforming us to the ideals the culture the 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 value systems that are around us the things that matter to people in the world uh, have a have a, an effect upon us now you'll understand that this really isn't a one cap fits all test of worldliness um you can't just take something and make it your test of uh, worldliness um some some folks that i know um some of them lovely believers, older believers, but you know they would have thought it was worldly if you wore brown shoes, um, and really that's not an issue when you come to the Bible, um, and, and really there's a danger with us having a group of questions that if people answer in a certain way, we can designate other people as worldly. We're usually okay. We've usually passed the standard ourselves. So whatever we do it with. Um, we we can set up this kind of litmus test idea. And really what we're doing is we're judging other people as to their worldliness slash godliness. I remember my dad used to say to me from time to time, he says, Andrew, worldliness is in the heart. It's not in things, it's in the heart. And that's a really important thing because whether we come, come to John or James, um, as we'll see in chapter 4, he deals with the very heart of the issue, the, the very root of the problem. So let's look at James and how he uh, defines, well, maybe he doesn't define, but describes and, and deals with the problem of worldliness. What we will see as we go through is the greatest antidote to worldliness is it's actually true humility before God. Uh, and so it's good to keep that in mind because it helps us to understand where we're going here. You'll see I put at the bottom of the first page of the handout 
um, a wee picture of a tree. Um, I was actually thinking recently just of how fascinating trees are, that you only see maybe half the tree above the ground, and yet, you know, when you dig under the surface, you've got this great network of roots, especially certain types of trees that, that, that are actually bigger than the trees themselves. Well, James is great at digging under the surface of problems. Uh, you'll see this in every chapter, whenever we come to different things. What he's doing, you know, we come to chapter one, and he deals with with trials and temptations, and he doesn't give us a surface problem at all. He says, okay, what about your attitude, for instance, to God? And these big questions, he deals with that. Um, he comes onto the subject of, of the Word of God and our reading of the Word. And he's not just saying, listen, you should make sure you read a chapter a day. No, 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 that that's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you have to be not only hearing the Word, but doing the Word. It has to... We can't come to this mirror and look at it and walk away from it having understood our problems. You know, that's not the way we're meant to deal with the Word of God. So he deals with the root of the problem. Game of partiality. He says, you're holding the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is the Lord of glory. He says, how can you do that and be living in a partial way that that is judging people on, on externals and, and not really assessing them in God's presence. Um, he speaks about faith, you know, people that say that they have faith, but there's no evidence in their life. What's he doing? Again, he's going to the root of, he's going under the surface. And so that same with the tongue, chapter three, and now worldliness, he's going to deal with worldliness at its root um, level. And, and that's really important because and, and actually, interestingly, in First Corinthians, Paul does exactly the same with the problems in Corinth. He deals with the root of the issue, not not just the superficial, you know, um, because sometimes the superficial can look very different than what the actual problem is. So, so he digs under the surface and, and looks at the roots. And if you can get root treatment on a tree, you'll save the tree. Whereas if you just let the tree um, try and... Um, deal with the tree from a, a surface level up you, you may well lose the tree itself so he's dealing with the underlying um, root problems here as we come to worldliness so let's look at the chapter itself for a few minutes together and I trust it will be a blessing you can go away and study it in more detail you'll notice from verse 1 to verse number 10 it's what I've called worldliness in passions and anger uh, I've put in brackets selfish strife um we'll come back to that in a minute so the first section worldliness in passions and anger then worldliness in perception of others the issues there's not so much selfish strife although i think it comes from that Uh, it's critical judgment of others you look at others and you're assessing them and then the third way that we have worldliness in James is not so much my passions that leads to anger and war um, or or even my perception of others which makes me judge them and do things that I shouldn't be doing in that sense uh, but actually worldliness in my plans for the future so this this idea that you plan and you leave God out of your plan and you're quite you're quite boastful about that. You're 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 quite happy with the fact that I'm I'm the great self-made man. I can sort these things out. So that's the third point he's going to come to. 
So really, I've put a my into each of those because I don't want us to think about anybody but ourselves here. Worldliness in my passions and anger. Worldliness in my perception of others. Worldliness in my plans for the future. As we go down this chapter, verse 1 to 10, verse 11 and 12, verse 13 to 17, that's the three bit divisions. I trust we'll all be um, helped by it. I, I, find, I find James grueling, to be quite honest. I have never really studied James 4 um, before. I read it and whatever, but sometimes when you come face to face with what is actually being said, it it humbles you, and I think that's what it should do. It certainly should have done that for me. So... Let's come to verse number one and we'll move down the verses together, especially this first section, uh, worldliness in passions and anger. Where do wars and fightings come from among you? You notice that, first of all, what he's doing, he starts with the problem, as it were, he's, he's, if this is someone who comes to the doctors and they've got, they've got symptoms on show. Now he said that at the end of number th- chapter 3. He said that the real way in which teachers should operate is in an atmosphere of peace. They should be peacemakers and, and they should sow the fruit of righteousness and peace. And so he's contrasting with the way things should be and the way things are in chapter 4 verse 1. Where does this these wars and fightings among you? There were big problems among the Christians there um, where James was writing to the, the Jewish Christians, the background of Judaism. Um, they were they were at each other's throats far too much. Um, and so he looks at those symptoms and he says, listen, let's go under the surface here. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members, that battle within you, another translation puts it. So what he's saying is, listen, that outward warring and anger and backbiting and fighting and all that kind of things it's just a mirror of what's happening under the surface in the root system he's saying in the heart there there are these passions and desires that you have that are warring together and and they're affecting you so he looks at uh, one, the second part of verse 1 and into verse 2 and 3 and he, he develops that, he diagnoses the problem um, as, if we like, uncontrolled desires. You lust and you do not have. Now, it has a full stop then and it starts a new sentence with you murder in the version I'm using here, the New King James Version. I think it's the same in King James. Um, I, I think it's more better structured like this and this is helpful for us to understand. You lust and you do not have, I think the ESV has, so you murder. And then you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight in war. You see what's happening there? He's dealing first with this, the root system, the problem within, you lust, you do not have, therefore you go to the other extreme. You know, whether he's speaking about those actual believers going out and committing murder, that seems unlikely for various reasons, but we know that the Lord speaks in Matthew chapter 5 of, of, of hatred and, and speaking against people as, as the first step towards murder. And, and so he's taking the dramatic picture. He says, listen, you've got the, these desires that are battling in your heart and, and you're, they're unfulfilled. And there may be illicit as well, as we'll see in a minute or two. But 
he says, that's why it breaks out in sinful actions and, and battling and warring between you. And he says, the same you covet, you cannot obtain, you fight and war. And then he says, now, what, what's, what else is going on here? He says, you, um, verse number three, you ask, you know, verse two, the end of it, yet you do not have because you do not ask. In other words, the Lord is willing to give things to his people. If they only ask him, ask and you shall receive, the scripture says, seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be open to you. The Lord, again, he refers so often to the Lord's words in his, in, in his uh, writings. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it in your pleasures. Now notice, this is another reason why you might not receive something in prayer. Now there are many reasons. The Lord knows that if you ask um, in my name, he says in John, you will receive. Now, in my name is a very important thing it is a controlling caveat but it's also an authority uh, and what I mean by that is this it is the authority to which we can come into the presence of God it is the reason why the Lord answers our request but also it is a controlling um, caveat because really what we have in his name is things that are according to his will in line with his character so the Lord would never for instance ask for something to simply consume it on his own lust perish the thought or to spend it on your own pleasures as it has here okay so so when we ask something in the Lord's presence and we don't receive it it might be because we don't believe we'll receive it that's chapter one it might be because we want it for our own ends and our own lust just to spend it on herself in that sense rather than for the glory of God so this is where we have to look at our motivations and our hearts when we pray and we should assess to ourselves am I wanting this for the Lord's glory for the blessing of his people those kind of things and and if there's that's the case well if it is according to his will he hears and will answer in his own good time and in his own way, way. If there, this is the wonderful thing about prayer but they were not asking, and if they were asking, sadly they were asking amiss. They were asking in the wrong kind of way. Now, he doesn't stop there. Now he's going to show who's to blame in this problem. He's going to ask them to take responsibility. Look at verse 4 and 5. Now look what he speaks to them as. Adulterers and adulteresses. Or there's a, you know, it could be just you adulterers are a sort of general title but anyway we'll leave it the way it is here adulterers and adulteresses do you not know that the friendship of this world is enmity with God whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God what is he saying well I think there's a reason why he's replaced my brethren which is the normal way he speaks with adulterers unfaithful he's not speaking about as we discovered when we were looking at it the fact that they were being unfaithful to their marriage vows but rather that they are being unfaithful to the God who has saved them now that's really really challenging because these Jewish believers would look at the Old Testament and as we were thinking and Raymond was bringing up um, the, the other evening um Again and again, 
we have this idea of of adultery being used in the Old Testament about Israel and their relationship with the Lord. They they were unfaithful to him. They went after false gods. They, in that sense, they constituted themselves enemies of the Lord, of God. And what he's saying here is with these kind of out of control, sinful passions that are breaking out into sin and, and, and causing arguments and dissension among you, really what you're doing is being unfaithful to the God who has saved you and, and into which you are in a sense, and I'll just say in a sense, in, in a kind of covenantal relationship. Now that, that comes out in the idea of the marriage covenant between the bride of Christ and the church in Ephesians 5 and things like that. I think Stuart brought that out as well. So so who's to blame for this problem? First of all, he's pointed out what the problem is. He's diagnosed the, the situation and he says, who's to blame? You're to blame. Adulterers. And so you imagine how shocking it was for them to listen to these words coming from um, the apost- um, um, from James. And then he goes on and he says, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world constitutes himself an enemy of God. It doesn't matter what he says, he's an enemy of God. Now this is really important to understand. I use the illustration of uh, Sir Hugh Ord. Um, He used to be the uh, chief constable in Northern Ireland and he moved eventually, I think, to... um, to the Metropolitan Police and, and, and onward and upward and all that. Well, Hugh Ord was, he seemed a nice, you know, man and all that kind of thing. But then it came out that he had, um, he had a lady that he was with other than his wife. And his wife was quite happy with this, apparently, according to the media. And this was seen as, you know, this is, this is progress, the way forward and all this kind of thing would have been um, muted, I think, in the, in the media, but really what he was doing when he was leaving his wife for this other lady, he was constituting himself an enemy of his wife. Whether he liked it or not, he was acting as though he hated his wife. He was going against everything that he had promised. And that's what the Lord's saying here. See, you you got saved and God has blessed you and given you eternal life and making sure you're going to heaven and yet you've got these uncontrolled desires that are bursting out in anger in your life and so on and all that evidence is is the fact that spiritually speaking you're being unfaithful to me because this isn't the way God would have it and he goes on in verse the rest of the verse and the rest of the verse is a very interesting um, point that's being made he says, whoever therefore, um, or sorry, verse number five. And do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Now, it could be that the spirit has a small s. Um, I mentioned all the options. This is one of these verses that's very hard to translate in the New Testament. And, and all the experts will you know, come up with dozens of options. And of course, we look at the context and, and see, try to see which one fits in best. I'll give you what I think uh, right now. And uh, we'll maybe leave it there if you want to discuss it with me. I'm very happy to. Um, a lot of the different versions have slightly different nuances and they're all um, valid from a textual point of view. But here we have it. The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy. Now, what it could be saying is 
that the spirit within us that's you know inside us small s in fact most translations say the spirit that has been given to us or the spirit which he has made to dwell in us um that it yearns jealously or it lusts to envy you think envy jealousy bad words well we know in the old testament um and especially in this context of marriage numbers five that a spirit of jealousy is actually something where a man wants to check the faithfulness of his wife and i think what it's saying is this that the spirit which he has made to dwell in us jealously desires us he wants us for himself for god he wants us to enjoy his presence so this is a positive word i think um, you know jealously desiring us he wants us to enjoy him he knows that's the best thing for us and so when god is spoken of a jealous as a jealous god in the old testament he knew to go after those false idols was madness for the people and he wanted in his love the best for them and and as a, a husband would look to care for his wife and and have have her full allegiance so the spirit of god within us seeks that we and desires that we might be honoring to god i hope that is is helpful to understand i think that fits best uh, with the context now you'll see there there is a sense in which you can put a small s the spirit um within us lust to envy and if you take it that way the point that's being made is this that we have a fallen nature and and these kind of arguments and anger and those kind of things are an evidence of that now my problem is that there's a lot that suggests that this might really should be um um that he is made to dwell in us and, and i struggle with the idea that that that's really the point that's being made in that case but that's me full stop on that subject we looked at it for quite a bit um in the bible study you can go away and search into it and see what you think now i think this is helpful but so here we have the Holy Spirit within us desiring our best interest, desiring us to be united and enjoying the Lord. Otherwise, we grieve the Spirit. Um, Beth brought that out. We grieve the Spirit. And, and, and that's not what God wants for us. Okay. Verse number six. But he gives more grace. Now, this is lovely. This is the answer to the problem. God and his grace. God and his grace. Just think of this. Think of the person standing at the end of verse number five. And they're just looking around and saying, I've got all these problems with, with anger and, and these desires I have. There, some might be godly and they're mixed in with ungodly desires. We're all the same. We're all human. Uh, we, we, you know, there's, there's that potential within us, that fallen potential. And, and, and we know we are indwelled by the Spirit who wants the best for us, wants us to honour him. And, and you may say, how on earth am I going to be successful in it? Well, that's where verse 6 comes in beautifully. He gives more grace. There is more grace than the problem. We kind of didn't touch this very much in the Bible study because there's so much to touch. But how wonderful that no matter what the problem is in our life, no matter what the worldliness is in our hearts, 
The fact that we have a tendency to constitute ourselves enemies of God by our actions and our attitudes, our lusts and those kind of things. He says, no, 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 no. He gives no more grace. Therefore, he says, and he, and he starts to quote uh, the Old Testament to us. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Isn't that lovely? God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So this is the idea of God standing in battle array against the proud. The person who said, ah, oh, just live the way I want to live and I'll do what I want to do and, and, and I'll be self-sufficient. He'll come on to that later. But he gives grace to the humble. The one who's willing to acknowledge their fault and their sin is willing to be marked by a spirit of repentance. Repentance for Christians that's an important thing. It uh, comes out again and again. You see in the seven churches, the Lord speaking to Christians and saying, repent. And that's repentance in that sense. The old Puritans used to say, um, it just started at conversion. There's a sense in which we spend our life repenting. And and I understand what they mean by that. Here he's going to give, a, if you like, the course of humble repentance. So this is the answer that, James the doctor gives to the problem, the symptoms being these wars, the diagnosed problem being these uncontrolled desires that lead to the, the, the responsibility being you, your adulterers and adulteresses. The answer to the problem being God and his grace, he says, listen, here's the course that you need to take. It's the course of humble repentance. And there are 10 commands here. If you have a Newbury Bible, that comes out really clearly. Um, there's a little point dot if you've got a I was about to say, if you get a proper Newbury, <laughs> that's terrible. Um, if you get one of the larger Newbury Bibles, um, you will find that there, there's a little point before, I think it's in a smaller one too, um, before each of these 10 commands that are given. Short, sharp, aorist, imperatives, to use that expression. Look what it says. Submit to God, one. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Lament, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So you see it ends with this thought of humility and the Lord lifting up out of the problem. But this is a kind of military um, command structure here. You see, submit, that's the idea. God resists the proud. He stands in battle ray against the proud. But now we submit under him and we resist the devil. We draw near to God. Now it's, he moves from this picture of, um, well, maybe the medical picture at the start and the military picture. He's going to move on to what we might say is the priestly picture. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. See the promises here. The devil, he will flee. God, he will draw near. Um. To humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. He will lift you up. So there's a wonderful array of, of the 100% efficacy of this treatment. If we take this course of humble repentance in our lives and acknowledge our sin, there will be restoration. Isn't that wonderful that the Lord doesn't just leave us to hang on? If we return to God and cleanse our hands as the outward sins and 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 our hearts, the attitudes within, 
if we're marked by repentance and humility and acknowledge the seriousness of sin, that's important. You know, we live in a, a light age when nothing is serious at times. Well, that we should have seriousness about these things. You say, is it really that important, James? I mean, just because I have a few arguments. Yes, James says, it's really that important. So then he goes on, and we'll just have a couple of minutes here uh, to finish off. He moves on to worldliness in my perception of others. Now, some people run this together um, with, with the section before, which is fine, and might be the, the structure underlying it. But I just divided it up here. It's this idea of critical judging. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Verse 11. He who speaks evil of a brother judges his brother. He speaks evil of the law and judges the law. And we asked the question in the Bible study and got good answers. Um, we asked the question, how does the person who speaks evil of his brother, speaks against his brother, speak evil of the law and judge the law? And really we came to this conclusion that the reason why that is so is because what you're doing is you're maybe applying the law to someone else but not to yourself. Um, there, there's a sense in which, you know, part of the law and, and perhaps the thought of law here is from chapter one, the, 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 the law of liberty, the, the, big, the big moral truth behind the law, I think it is. Um, the, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, loving your neighbor as yourself. And, and we can be very quick to point out faults in our brothers and sisters. Oh, they're so bad at this or they're so annoying. And, and, and it become a critical thing. And actually what we're doing is we're not acknowledging that those problems are our problems because we don't always live. We're not putting ourselves under the law. We're just putting them under the law. So we're actually judging the law. We're saying the law is not good enough for us, but we'll, we'll use it for someone else. So, um, And then he says, actually, there's a posturing against the lawgiver, against the judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge another? Or, as many translations have it, who are you to judge your neighbour? That brings it back to the the second hook of the law. Loving your neighbour as yourself. He says, oh, there, are you loving your Would you like that to be happening? Would you want somebody to be critically speaking about you at this point? Now, I know there's a time and a place where you have to be honest with each other. And there are circumstances. when, but But really... What he's saying is worldliness can show itself in my critical judging of others. And sometimes people, when they're saying so-and-so is so worldly, it's actually pointing the finger at them because this critical attitude is a worldly attitude. So you can say you can develop it in Matthew 7, if you like, uh, as well. Okay, worldliness and my plans for the future. We think of the picture of the rich farmer here in the background, Luke chapter 12. You remember the man who, who, who pulled down his barns and built greater and so on, and, and he left God out of the picture entirely. Now, I think there's a bit more to it than that, because what we have in verse number 13 um, is, is the idea of someone who, in business, they're going to buy and sell, stay there a year, get gain, make profit and all this, but he's doing it in a certain way. He's doing it in a boastful way. Look at verse number 15. Instead, or no, verse number 16. But you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So so this is the arrogant self-made man says, I'm going to nail this. I've got the future sorted out. 
I'm I'm making my money. I'm doing making my fortune. Everything's going the way I you know. This is the arrogant, self, uh, made, godless planning and and boastful independence from God that marks people in the world. So this is worldliness and plans for your future. How should we be? What's the solution? Verse number fifteen. He says the solution is, um, you ought to say. If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Now, really what he's saying, and I've used this quotation, is self-centered bragging must be replaced by God-honoring trust. That's from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Self-centered bragging must be replaced by God-honoring trust. I love that. That kind of sums up what's being said here. If the Lord will, we shall live and do this. Or that we can't even hold on to our life. It's just like a vapor, he'll say. And and we're working, and we think we're going to work out what we're going to do in the future. We don't even know whether we'll be here tomorrow. So we have to be submissive and and an understanding of God's perspective, the Lord's overarching will. Now, sometimes we use the Lord's will in the th- sense of, you know, I want to find out the Lord's will. That's really not the thought here. Um, I don't want to take that away. And there's a sense in which the Lord's will is not lost. You know, we don't need to find it. Um, it's what happens. Because the Lord over in an overarching sense allows things to happen in our life. And that's really, I think, the force that's being, you know, if the Lord allows it to happen, if the Lord wills, I, I want to be submissive to whatever comes my way under the will of the Lord. Um, I think that's the main way in which it's being used here. Now, now that doesn't mean I don't seek guidance for everyday life. I'm not taking that away. But that's the force, I think, here. If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Now, is that such a problem? You, you say, well, I don't say if the Lord wills. Does it mean it? Well, it doesn't mean just saying. Because there's lots of people in the Bible didn't say this, but they did it in heart. And so this is deeper than that. It's not about necessarily tagging the expression DV or if the Lord wills on the back end of everything you say. That's not the purpose. It's to have that submissive attitude of recognizing the Lord's sovereignty and his providence and that he is in control and we must be submissive to him or whatever comes our way. So finally, verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do Uh, To him it is sin. You say, I didn't think this was all a big problem. I mean, like, just a little bit of um, anger from time to time, you know. um, You know, having desires that haven't haven't been fulfilled and whatever. Well, I didn't really think, you know, this idea of boasting. You know, just saying something about the future. Oh, I'm going to do this. This is my plans and... And doing it in a kind of self-satisfied uh, manner. I don't think of such a problem. I mean, is it really such an issue? He says, listen, whoever knows to do good and doesn't do it to him, it's sin. There are sins of omission. There are sins of commission. That is, we actively go out to commit sin. That's like um, if somebody commits a crime, commission. And there are sins of omission, things I should be doing. I should be bringing the Lord into my plans. And otherwise it's a sin, so I need to be repentant of it. So that's more or less concludes what we were thinking about. Um, when we came to the conclusion um, 
Beth brought us back to a beautiful truth, and it's this, that when it comes to desires and so on, that we should be seeking and our, our satisfaction in the Lord. And that's really underlying this. He's looking at the negative here, but it's good to remember that sat- true satisfaction are, are, are found, our thirst is quenched, our hunger is satisfied in the Lord himself. He is the fountain of living waters. And and we've got to remember that in, in our lives. If we have this issue of of having these desires, just getting alone in the presence of the Lord and reappreciating the Lord. Satisfied with the Lord Jesus, I am blessed. Peace that passes understanding in my breast. No more doubting, no more trembling. All is rest. Taken up with thee, Lord Jesus, I would be finding joy and satisfaction all in thee, thou the dearest and the dearest unto me. And as that sister who penned those words knew, no doubt in her own personal experience, that's where true satisfaction is found in the Lord himself. We trust this has been a help to you. Thank you.